Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From shows hosted by A-list celebrities to the newest viral true crime show and even disrupted, podcasting has become a mainstream feature of the entertainment industry. In less than two decades, the technology has gone from side projects for bloggers to a market that's now worth over a billion dollars. So what's next for podcasting? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're surveying the growing podcast space. Later, we'll hear about a podcast studio that's centering its work on diverse communities. And we'll look at the role that podcasters played in spreading fake news that helped fuel the January 6th insurrection. But first, few journalists have been more dedicated to the podcasting world than Nick Kwa. He first started listening to podcasts back in 2008 and founded the trade publication Hot Pod in 2014. Today, Nick is a podcast critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. Nick, welcome to Disrupted. My pleasure. You know, I want to get right into it because you are one of the premier voices in this industry. And so much has changed since you first started covering that industry. Share with our listeners how you were introduced to the medium and what was it about podcasting that drew you in? I mostly started listening to podcasts because, uh, so I'm not from this country. I'm from uh, from Malaysia. We don't really have a tradition of narrative radio or you know, conversational talk radio that isn't, you know, morning zoo, basically. And so in college, I I heard a snippet of something on the local public radio station and like digging around to try to find a way to listen more. uh, I found the iTunes podcast charts. And from there, it just sort of opened me up to this. At the time, it was around 2010, 2009, this sort of world of people uh, basically blogging through through a microphone. And I just kept listening until uh, 2014 when the sort of big serial boom and phenomenon happened and by that time I had been a listener and a fan for a number of years and you know everybody was kind of responding to the phenomenon in a way that didn't feel right to me and so I started paying more attention started writing about it for fun and then as a as a self-created job and it's been almost eight years (laughs) since since that moment. For me, one of the beauties of the medium of podcasting is that you can tell such diverse stories in ways that bring in voices you may not always hear. And now that podcasting is this ubiquitous feature of American culture so that, I mean, the U.S. military, the Army has podcast series. Trader Joe's has a podcast. Draymond Green has a podcast that I may be alone, but I am looking forward to hearing. No, I, I'm, you're not alone. I, I loved yesterday's episode. <laughs> See, that makes me feel better. But I want to take a step back from there because you mentioned Serial. And a lot of people think that Serial was the start of podcasting. But you say it's actually much more complicated and nuanced. Share with us then that trajectory of the podcast industry and and how it has become this major platform that we all connect to. 
Podcasting started as a technological offshoot of the same technology sort of infrastructure that gave us blogging. It was the um, the actual sort of feed of it. That, you know, when we use the term podcast feed, uh, it's linked to the concept of the RSS. And in sort of the mid-2000s to the second half of the 2000s, there was this sort of like up and down push of trying to get ordinary people uh, blogging over with their microphones. Audio blogging is, what it, is the way they called it. So a lot of the traditions and the cultures of that early sort of decade, one could say, was sort of was intertwined with those blogging ideals. It was this sort of playground for people who were looking for alternative paths to just do stuff and maybe forge online communities. Comedians entered the space. Uh, people who just wanted to do other stuff and play around with with microphones, you know, found found a space. There's a lot of technologists and people talking about Apple being able to listen to it on demand lets you kind of experience the full flow of of the experience. Um, so 2014 happens, serial happens. It's this sort of melding together of this style of public radio journalism that, you know, from a team that really liked taking creative risks, embedded with the fact that what they were telling, though they would say that they did not know they were telling that at the time, a true crime story. And so um, it, it is sort of a really, to get to this beginning of history, quote unquote, you need a bit of prehistory and, and that essentially what was what happened. You know, I want to pick up on something that you just mentioned, that People saw podcasting as this alternative space for engagement, an, an alternative space to think about power, to think about agency, to think about the stories people wanted to tell and the stories that they wanted to hear. And in some ways, the platform was viewed as a, a more democratic playing field. The people who couldn't be in the spaces of traditional media forms could do that in podcasting. Do you think that's still the case now in 2022, that it is a more democratic playing field? Or do you feel like it has shifted in the same kinds of critiques that we had for mainstream media platforms? Yeah, I think that's a really, so. I mean, that is the essential question of a lot of our media ecosystems today, right? Um, and I think you can't think through that without sort of taking full consideration the larger media ecosystem. So one could say that the tools of publishing has never been more accessible. I think that's true, right? Anybody could, in theory, get an audience on Twitter. Anybody, in theory, could get an audience on any social media platform. Uh, but at the same time, the the conflict and the struggle is different now than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago. 15, 10 year, 15 years, 10 years ago, it is a struggle to fight against gatekeeping, right? The who has means, to, who has access to the means of distribution and production, frankly. Now it is who has means to break through abundance and break through saturation and what that means and what that in theory looks like and what um, equity and democratization means in a context where everybody has access in theory to the tools of production. So I think the frame of how we have these conversations has shifted, right? And the, the answer for me, I think, when I think about where we are in podcast business is a little bit different, Right. It's, I, I would not necessarily say it's 100% worse or 100% better. On the one hand, you can make money. On the, one ha- on the other hand, you, people, more people know about podcasts, more people are listening. So in theory, you have access to or theoretical access to a slice of the larger pie. The question is whether that value, that access is equitably spread across the market. And there's a lot of work to be done there. And what is tricky is on two fronts. And might, this might be too wonky, but on the one hand, it's a question of organizations. So like existing powerful platforms and publishers are they doing a better job taking quote-unquote risks with uh, quote-unquote different voices the other is on a simple economic industry market level 
Is it easier for different kinds of shows, businesses, voices, to be entrepreneurs within this space? And on that note, I think it's it's hard to say that um, it's easier today to start a business than it was five, 10 years ago. In many ways it is, in many ways it isn't, but on aggregate, I feel like a lot of work needs to be done. I want to talk about that connection between equity and access and the business of the business. This is a lucrative business. Billions of dollars have been poured into the podcasting industry around things like acquisitions and licensing deals, which raises questions about who gets to initiate and benefit from those deals, as well as who's in the conversation for that so that they can be in there. What do you think is the impact then of this influx of money that podcasting as an industry has become more lucrative, has a higher profile? It's not a fly by night genre. Some people thought it would be at the beginning. What is the impact of it now being so profitable? You know, when value is created, the uh, industrialist will come, right? So I think what we're seeing, you know, the acquisitions largely have been, you know, culturally spearheaded and, you know, materially spearheaded by Spotify, a followed suit by SiriusXM, Amazon Music slash Wondery, iHeartMedia. What happens then is that you have these already powerful entities stepping in and assuming the attention and the conversation. So this has very specific material implications, which is to say, when if I am an advertiser who's thinking about dipping my toe into podcasting, I wouldn't necessarily spend the time doing hours of research, figuring out what is actually effective in the space, what I want to support in the space. They will go to the people that they already know, that they have a brand trust with. And so this is the al- alignment that's happening. Uh, so Spotify might, at present is trying to build a narrative that they are better than the existing sort of status quo of the podcast ecosystem, that they are the best possible and the most trustworthy entity that you want to invest your money in if you want to advertise on podcasting. And that has implications because can we say, can we believe, can we argue that Spotify is particularly effective in backing a diverse set of shows? Are they particularly effective interesting, strong takers of creative risks. You know, I, I, I will leave that to debate. I have my own views on it. I, <laughs> you know, I'll let the, 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 the community decide. Um, but that is also true for every other major player in the space. iHeartMedia, SiriusXM, Amazon Music. Some are better than others, right? We can also have a conversation about how public radio and NPR plays a role in this space. I will also say that it's not all bad, right? Uh, there is a growing movement of podcasters who figured out um, what independence looks like in 2022. And that largely looks like um, Patreon support, so direct subscriptions. There is a growing body of fascinating shows that aren't as big, that they are able to carve together a strong, smaller audience that they're able to monetize more effectively and in a way that feels truer to what they're trying to do. So there are developments on many, many fronts, but the problems and the larger you know, questions of equity and access, they are persistent because corporate American capitalistic entities tend to act a certain way. You know, I think that that issue of equity and access is rolled into what you were just mentioning in terms of those celebrity voices that can also dominate the co- the podcasting space. Because if I'm an advertiser or I'm a company, I want to minimize my risk and I want to maximize the return on that investment. But you also mentioned the role of NPR, public radio and public programming, which often enjoys a greater level of public trust But also that programming has connected to podcasting for a very long time. And yet 
we see high profile hosts like Sam Sanders and Lulu Garcia Navarro leaving that public radio space and going to these major podcast players. What is the role that you think public radio should play here when it comes to podcasting to address the kind of challenges that you mentioned, but also the tremendous opportunity that's in that space? NPR and and what I've been able to sort of glean. Uh, They have a specific philosophy around these things. My personal view is that public radio should be in the business of taking risks. I mean, they're not there. They benefit, the system benefits from a business model that is less subject to the vicissitudes and volatility of advertising conservatism. Let's put it that way. And it should be a mandate for them to constantly, not just, I mean, of, of course, bring in new voices that traditionally you would not see empowered within not just podcasting, but any media business. It, not just the voices, but form, s- subject, topic, angle, frame. All of these things are important for to be empowered and bolstered. And I can't think of a more, a safer kind of place to be able to do that because a show doesn't need to be, um, had to have a million downloads per episode in order to be considered a success. And, you know, it they will, you know, when it comes to a situation like, uh, you know, we've heard some story, I think the narrative over the past couple of months that uh, public radio has been losing um, talent of, in particular, talent of color. But the fact of the matter is like these things will happen, right? The the onus is to then replenish the pool and always keep the pool growing, right? It's Stars leave because they want to pursue other opportunities as well, that they want to make it, uh, that they want to sort of carve out a different business for themselves. Things happen, people change jobs, but your mandate is not never changing shouldn't change we've talked about the history of the podcasting industry we've talked about some of the current challenges and opportunities and strategies in that i want to look ahead to the future of the industry because some critics have said that we have hit the peak that the bubble is about to burst and that we should see a decline soon in podcasting do you agree with that sentiment and if not what what should we be looking for or toward the future of the podcasting industry? I have heard versions of my critique, and it's always so uh, short-sighted to me. It's so myopic because we are peak everything right now. I, you know, I am struggling to keep up television shows. It's hard for me to keep up with 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 uh, with a lot of things it's just it's kind of where we are in a culture and it ties back to a theme that we're talking about earlier which is we are in a time we are existing in a time of abundance and and media abundance and this is not a bad thing necessarily but i think the notion of a of peak peak whatever i think the a realistic way to think about it is is the output in such a way that it undermines the sustainability of the engine and i think on a systems level, it's impossible to say that there are that there's peak podcasts because people are listening to podcasts and they will always be listening to podcasts. As long as you have an audience, you have a shot at, at you know this thing existing. You can't tell me that theater is dead because people are still want to go to the theaters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a universe and there's a future in which Spotify out, has out-leveraged itself, has overextended itself in terms of its podcast investment that's not able to manage how much investment they're putting into this particular format and medium and whether they're able to meet investor uh, and sort of business goals within their own terms should they fail in this it does not mean that podcasting is dead just because 
we might not see Marvel 20 years from now doesn't mean that the movies or cinema is dead. That is a completely <laughs> specific way of looking at things. So no, I, I don't think that peak podcasting is even sort of a natural concept. You might have peak Spotify podcasting. You might have peak iHeartMedia podcasting. If they fail, they'll move on to something else. If they succeed, they will capture large portions of the ecosystem. When I think about the future of podcasting, I'm thinking about it in terms of questions. It, we know that it will be here. We don't know what it would look like. We don't know who will be making stuff. We don't know what the prime forms of this medium will be. We don't know if there are sufficient enough creative risks being taken. So, you know, it's on the one hand, it's hard to predict, but it is also not that hard to see how things can play out because, you know, the media business and the entertainment business at the end of the day is, is tethered to how American capitalism works. So you can follow where the trends are going there and you can more or less guess what the fight needs to be. I love that it speaks to the power of human innovation. Nick Kwa is podcast critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. He's founder of Hot Pod, a trade publication covering the podcast industry. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Such a pleasure. After the break, producer Paulina Velasco on how her work to make podcasting more accessible is improving the space. And a Brookings analyst talks about her research into the widespread use of fake news in the podcast market. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, we're talking about the business of podcasting. And later, a researcher explains the ties between podcast misinformation and the January 6th insurrection. But first, the podcast market is growing. In 2021, over a third of all Americans listen to podcasts each month. And that's according to data from Edison Research. For the first time, podcast audience were roughly as diverse as the U.S. population. The increased listenership from communities of color is a major win for an industry that struggled to diversify its audience for years. But advocates say that there's still more to be done to make the podcasting space more accessible for listeners and creators. Paulina Velasco is managing producer for LWC Studios. It's a production company with a focus on social justice. Paulina, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me, Kalila. 
So you've been working at LWC Studios for about two years, but I want to talk about the broader journey because you've been working in journalism and narrative storytelling in a number of ways. Share with our listeners how you were first introduced to audio journalism and what is it about that format that drew you in? So I was studying political science. I was doing my master's degree in France. And one of our assignments was to interview like some politician or a diplomat at a radio station at this local radio station. And as soon as I walked in and did this interview, I remember my heart was pounding and my hands were sweating. And I was like, this is it. I want to be doing radio. Um, So I parlayed that experience into an internship at that radio station. That was in 2014. When I got back to the States in 2016, I worked my way through you know, mostly the public radio sphere and then eventually into podcasting. I did what a lot of us do. I started off with an unpaid internship in the Bay Area. I made it work because I worked at a call center part time and lived with my sister and worked at a bunch of the public radio stations here. I got into podcasting. I helped produce a, a Slate podcast that was in Spanish. And then I became a podcast producer. I did a lot of freelance work and and then got to LWC Studios. Oh, did a bit of freelance reporting here in Los Angeles, but that's my journey through through radio, yeah. But what I think is great about that journey is I hear in your journey so much of what I hear from other people who are trying to do something different in journalism, particularly in the area of podcasting, of people who may not have seen themselves in that space, but now have an opportunity to not just be part of it, to transform it. And I think that brings us to the work that you're doing with LWC Studios, which was founded by a veteran journalist, Juleka Lantigua, who broke so many barriers in those spaces, but is now committed to creating more opportunities for people. Talk to us about the mission of LWC Studios and how it relates to this broader product of social justice and inclusion in the way we tell these stories. So LWC Studios is a production company. We were founded in 2017, like you mentioned, by Juleka Lantiwa. And we like to say that our mission is to erase the margins. And to us, that means to create space for the stories and storytellers that are too often relegated to the margins. And so that looks like a lot of different things. You know, we make interview shows, narrative shows like 70 million, um, more personal shows like how to talk to mommy and poppy and how to talk to high achievers. And all of these are catering towards rising audiences. It's built into our business model. And we also have a branch of the company called Podcasting Seriously, which is all about cultivating those storytellers and those stories that we want to bring into the fold, that we want to bring into the center of our of our work. So really trying to create the kinds of resources for the people that we want to bring into the fold and make, you know, help make their stories heard. I think those resources are so key because often when we think about spaces that have historically kept certain people out, right, or that have historically not looked like the communities that they report on, the idea is we just need to drop people in and let them fend or swim. And so this is an intentional way about saying, as we are cultivating these spaces and new voices, we also need to have the resources necessary for them to be successful. And we think about journalism and radio that historically 
not only produced content for predominantly white communities, but also catered to those communities. And so there's a, a stat from a 2018 study of the Pew Center that said 75% of newsroom staff were white. And we know that's not the picture of America. Do you think that podcasting has the opportunity to be more accessible to journalists of color than, say, traditional media outlets? Or does the podcasting industry struggle with some of those same dynamics of exclusion? That's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is yes and no. I think there is I think there is opportunity in podcasting that you don't have in more traditional media outlets. And I can tell you a little bit about my own experience as an example. So while I was in a lot of public media in Los Angeles, which is 50% Latino and I'm Latina, I remember trying to have conversations. So in my case, I was trying to have conversations with the editors and managers I worked with about, you know, could we air more Spanish? Do Can we work with multilingual audio? You know, we're full of, this is Los Angeles, there are a lot of immigrant communities. We're serving these communities. You know, I just want to have a conversation. What could that look like? Could we be creative with it? And there wasn't room for that conversation. Whereas in podcasting, you know, we're crafting the stories that we want to tell. And I think there's more room to be creative in that way. I think the obstacles exist that exist in traditional outlets as well. I mean, it's always about resources and funding. And are you really giving people the resources to make the stories that we say we want to make, which is why we, a lot of like podcasting seriously for us is we're kind of, you know, it's part of our mission statement to train storytellers of color and to find diverse stories. It's also like in our self-interest because we want to hire those producers and hire those, you know, those freelancers to work for us and bring us their stories because it's it's part of what we wanted. It's, it's our business model. These are the stories we want to publish. I do think in podcasting you have you have more room for independent producers, which is an interesting dynamic. Of course, you still need to get paid. You still need to have the resources to make your show if you're an independent producer. But I feel that there's there's worthy there's work that's being done by a lot of individuals to bring diversity and inclusion into institutional journalistic outlets, and there's also a lot of work being done to cultivate independent podcasters so they can make use of this space. Let's talk about one of the barriers to accessibility, and that has to do with technical skill. So that a lot of people say that if an employer or a company, an organization is going to require that people have technical skills in audio editing, you also have to think about how expensive those tools can be and who has access to them. So I wanted to know, because of your experience as a producer, the intentionality of your mission of cultivating diverse groups of people and supporting them in that, what can we do to address that gatekeeping function in the podcast industry? How can we ensure that, you know, yes, we'll hear more diverse stories, but the people telling those stories can also be diverse given the cost of entry? Definitely. I mean, in my mind, it goes back to training. So a common conversation is, do you know how to use Pro Tools? And everybody needs to use Pro Tools. And Pro Tools is, is both, both cost money to have and there's a barrier to entry. It's a little bit complicated to learn how to use it, but it's not impossible to learn how to use it. And it's not impossible to work across platforms. And so what I feel like the gatekeeping is, is a lack of training opportunities and opportunities to learn things. And as journalists, we're very, 
adaptable. We learn really fast. It's kind of like what you have to do. And so I don't think it's so much that you can't learn or you can't have access to a certain software. But like you said, it's the uh, the barrier of the cost of it and of being trained in it. So one of the things we recently implemented last month in May is, um, we might want to talk about the Podcasting Seriously Awards Fund, but part of the awards fund now reimburses BIPOC and LGBTQ plus identifying independent audio producers for signing up for training opportunities, for workshops, for mentoring opportunities. So a lot of these things cost money, but they're there, which is the exciting part. So we offer a lot of them. We have like webinars on in our video on demand series on how to use Pro Tools and how to edit and, you know, edit scripts and all the technical aspects. But there's also the Association of Independence and Radio. There's a lot of resources out there. They just cost money. And so what the awards fund is, has started to do is say, apply with us, tell us what you're applying for and why you should get in. And we'll reimburse you for the cost of those mentoring and those training workshops, which you might not have access to perhaps because your manager isn't paying attention or your company might not value you going through those things. We're trying to break down some of those barriers of entry. So I, I agree. I think there is gatekeeping still in podcasting, just like in a lot of other, a lot of other industries, but there's a lot of us doing the work to try to take those gates down. And it, it's exciting to hear the many ways that you're working to dismantle those gates and to see what are the opportunities that people can have and how do you build a community of support to do that and to connect to community. And so I want to mention one of the projects that LWC Studios has been involved with because it's particularly illuminating when we think about listeners and the opportunities to grow audience. And that's the Latino podcast listener report that LWC Studios sponsors with Edison Research. This is the point that stood out to me that was just, it blew me away. Just 36% of U.S. Latinos are regular podcast listeners. How does that data point, not as necessarily a constraint, but as an opportunity, how does that influence the work that you and your team are doing around those stories? Yeah, I mean, we say that we cater towards rising audiences, emerging audiences, and it's like, it's built into our business model, right? We're catering towards the global majority. And so something interesting about that stat you mentioned is that it's still a 44% increase over 2020. And I think the increase is the key part. That listener report also breaks down where people listen, who they listen with, whether they like to listen in Spanish or English, why they listen to shows. And so all of that data provides ammunition for companies like us to go to advertisers and say, look, this is somebody you can advertise to. And it's on par with a lot of other trends. Like I saw a Nielsen listener report from last month that predicts that podcast listeners that we gained during the pandemic will continue to be regular podcast listeners and that podcast listeners are ready to go out into the world and start buying things. And so this data is important to really considering these audiences as part of just who you're catering to. The other thing that I think is so important about data is it gives us some perspective because often we get so caught up in the moment of why isn't this number higher without understanding where we've come from. 
because that also shapes the path that you can go. So as we think about concluding our time together, I want to think about that future and how we leverage some of this. The idea that the studios that you work with has a central to its mission, elevating voices of color, and that it's still a unique mission to say within our DNA, this is what we are going to do. As you look ahead to the future, what are one or two things that you would like to see the podcasting industry do to be more accessible and meaningfully inclusive? I'm excited. And you mentioned this in your question for it to no longer be like, how are we disrupting podcasting by making it diverse and rather these look at these numbers, look at how these listeners are a part of the market, the consumer market and are our audience. And so I'm excited for the conversation to just be, like you said, built into who our listeners are and what kinds of stories we want to make. I think what we're pushing for is for stories to be made that reflect the United States, that we also do things around the world that reflect the world. And I'm excited for people to bring those stories to companies like ours and, and get them made. Well, I appreciate the work that's being done to get the word out, to build community and build platforms. Paulina Velasco is managing producer at LWC Studios. Paulina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. When we come back, how podcasts have fueled misinformation and what can be done about it. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Researchers have shown how fake news on social media can have an impact on what people think and how they vote. But only recently have we learned that misinformation is pervasive in podcasting as well. Valerie Wirtschafter is Senior Data Analyst in the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technologies Initiative at the Brookings Institution. She's co-author of a new report on podcast moderation and misinformation. Valerie, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You know, there are a number of studies that show that people can develop a strong attachment to their favorite podcast, and that for some people, they develop this affinity or sense of trust in the host of those podcasts. What is it about podcasting and audio more generally that make it such a persuasive medium? Yeah, so I mean, I think that this is a, a really interesting question and really stems back even to the the radio age, thinking about um Roosevelt's fireside chats, the War of the Worlds broadcast that Orson Welles did in 1938. And, you know, part of it is really just all you have is really the the sound coming through either the airwaves or through your iPhone or whatever technology you're using. And then you have to fill in the gaps, right? You have to create that mental world, um, supply that imagery to complement that auditory space. And so, you know, in doing that, people fill in those holes in whichever way kind of connects with them, or that feels like is the, the right version of, you know, maybe what the podcaster looks like, or what they would believe about another subject or things like that. And so, you know, I think that sort of imagination component really helps to, to build that connection between podcaster or radio host or whatever audio um, method you're using 
between that host and the audience. That sense of connection, that sense of trust, that sense of imagination that the listener also plays a role in the experience is part of the reason why the podcast industry has exploded over the last 10 years. But what I think is interesting in that regard, Valerie, is that that industry or that platform has not been scrutinized the same way that we think about a Twitter or Facebook or social media more generally when it comes to the types of messages and credibility of those messages. Why do you think that those calls for content moderation have not really focused on podcasting? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few reasons. Some of them are technical. You know, the way a lot of the social media apps uh, identify challenging or problematic content, misinformation, hate speech, et cetera, is through text, through through the text that is included either in a tweet or a Facebook message, or through, uh, and most commonly, at least in research at the moment, through linking to suspicious websites that are known to spread really hyper-partisan content. And so for obvious reasons, um, that's not immediately available in audio and in podcasting. And so, you know, you don't have that text form. There's no hyperlink to explore. So technically it's a challenge in that respect. It's also so much more content, right? So you get maybe hours sometimes of audio if you're able to transcribe it, it's huge amounts of transcripts. And so it's a lot harder to parse in that respect. So that's one aspect of it, which is the kind of technical side. And then there's sort of the perception side, I would say. And and that's really, you know, kind of stems down to two factors. One is people didn't really view this medium as something that was going to lift off into a billion dollar industry in terms of ad revenue. You know, a lot of times people thought it was maybe a dying industry at certain points or a place for these prestige shows. So things like This American Life. Um, And, you know, really only recently, I'd say until or up beginning in 2016, did it become this place for these political conversations in particular? And when it became a space for political conversations, it was perceived to be a space for progressive political conversations. And so people were seeing it in some ways as this kind of antidote to conservative talk radio or the the liberal response to conservative talk radio. But in reality, you know, in a few short years, even that has transformed dramatically. And now overwhelmingly, it's it's much more on the conservative side as well. And so I think that stems also in terms of thinking about these misperceptions. A, a podcast episode, except maybe a Joe Rogan episode, can't really go viral in the same way that a tweet can. And so maybe uh, it was also perceived to not be as much of a threat in that respect. And so I think that all these sort of pieces contribute to the fact that this has been a really underexplored area for the way people get information about the world. Let's talk about some of that exploration that's happening because you are a political scientist by training and our listeners know how much that excites me. But that also means that you've done a great deal of research in this area, finding new spaces that are under represented, understudied, but also bringing that out to why this is an area that we should pay attention to. And one area within your research that I think is particularly important in this context is the area of misinformation and the connection between podcast and misinformation. So what were some of the things that you were looking into as you were conducting this research about the prevalence of podcast misinformation? 
Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, we put out a report at the Brookings Institution tied to misinformation around election fraud, so the 2020 elections. Um, what we found there was pretty stark and a bit upsetting. You know, we looked at around 1,500 episodes that focused on political topics between August 20th, so that was the convention, and January 6th, which was the storming of the Capitol. I think around a quarter of all episodes during that period um, were promoting uh, misleading election narratives. So things like either the election will be stolen or afterwards this election was stolen. Just look at the mail-in ballots or things like that. But what was really um, surprising is that after the election, one in two episodes that we reviewed was sharing misleading claims about the election. And so that was that was pretty surprising. Can, can I just restate? Can I just restate that data point that you just made? One in two episodes that you listened to were conveying and restating this misleading information. I, I just think that's amazing, shocking and discouraging as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, the, we weren't looking at the whole ecosystem of podcasts. Obviously, that would be impossible. But we were looking at 20 of the most popular series at the time. Um, so these were shows that in November 2020 appeared in Apple's top 100 list. So considered the mainstream in terms of political podcasts. You know, that was that was pretty surprising. And the other thing that we found is that that those misleading narratives didn't peter off. They didn't die down once tech t companies started to crack down and say, you can't share this information anymore or or they said, you know, okay, we've gone through the courts and none of this has panned out. Let's leave it alone. It, it continued pretty much unabated up and through January 6th. Before we move on, I want to go back a little to what you mentioned about looking at the most popular podcasts, because these hosts are names that are so well known, and not just in the space of podcasting, but also in politics. So we're talking about people like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, uh, the late Rush Limbaugh, Ben Shapiro, and Bill Maher. These are people who collectively have millions of followers, whose YouTube videos generate tens of millions of views. How concerned should we be about the relationship between misinformation and real world events like the January 6th insurrection? You know, I think that there is a potential and I, I think that the, the challenge is obviously identifying misinformation is tricky. The election is a really clear cut case of that. And unfortunately, what we saw in terms of our podcast data set is that these unsubstantiated claims of election fraud were very, very common, whether that led to real life behavior, whether that catalyzed the January 6th assault on the Capitol, we can't make that collect connection. However, we can say that this was a space where very clearly this narrative was reinforced, this narrative that drove people to the Capitol. And very clearly there was no effort period at all to stop it. You know, this was one of these kind of forgotten areas um, with a massive audience that, you know, continued to spread this type of content over time. And so, you know, I think that in that respect, like it is certainly an area that deserves much more attention. The challenge with podcast hosts is really anybody can be a podcast host. 
you know, you do not have to be a virologist to be talking about the pandemic, right? And so, you know, because of that lack of oversight over who, who is uh, considered an expert or what the credentials are required for that expertise, you know, I think podcasting can continue to serve as this vector. And hopefully what we are doing at Brookings and paying more attention to the space at least lets people know that someone is listening and we're documenting it. And, and so I think that, that that is a good first step, certainly not the be all end all. And unfortunately we have seen wild promotions of election fraud conspiracies even recently, I think that intimacy, that connection, the trust bestowed in hosts, the lack of credentials that any host can have and be able to talk about really anything, and the, the difficulty and lack of regulations in this medium all make it the space where this type of content can really continue to gain a foothold. You know, we are in the middle of these public hearings about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and the attack on American democracy, American safety. When we think about that insurrection, the lessons that are coming from it, what are the things that you would say to podcast apps or companies who are hosting shows in these podcasts to say, to be responsible to the American public? These are some steps that you could take proactively to ensure that kind of accurate information, but also the public interest. Yeah, you know, like I, I firmly believe that all kinds of speech, different ideas, different opinions should have a place and be able to, to flourish. And, you know, the challenge is, of course, in this uh, sort of vision for this marketplace of ideas and where there's tons of content as well. Unfortunately, in, in order to rise to the top amongst kind of this cacophony of noise, these thousands of podcasters, often the, the sensationalist, the shocking frequently filters to the top and it's profitable, right? And so I think that that's, that's a, a basic challenge period in the in this new media space where there are lots of voices, how do you make your voice stand out? And so, you know, I think that's a perennial challenge. I don't think that that's something that maybe podcasters can address. I think it's a responsibility of hosts to try and be truthful or, you know, carry that weight with them because they do know that they have influence and they have sway. And so, you know, in terms of things, tangible things that can be done, I think that the podcasting industry in terms of the app space is extremely, um, you know, it's extremely bare bones. Uh, it hasn't evolved much over time, even though the medium has really lifted off quite a bit. So content guidelines are really lacking. What is permissible content? What will lead to a podcast to be removed from uh, one of these apps? Things like that, moderation practices, thinking about how a podcaster can appeal those moderation decisions, things like that. These recommendation algorithms that govern what podcast people see. Obviously, you know, the ways people get podcasts these days, it's through personal connections or through these recommenders. And so what funnels into these recommenders? Should it be so easy to get from Firebrand with Matt Gates to a QAnon podcast in, you know, two to three clicks? And right now that's how these algorithms do work is that you can really funnel down a rabbit hole very quickly to some questionable content. 
the other things about it, it's really unclear in terms of the funding streams, where funding comes from, what are reporting guidelines, things like that. All these spaces can really help to make the medium a little bit more transparent, a little bit more open. Building in community to the medium, I think, makes it both a better experience for listeners and then also creates that sort of circular feedback loop so that it's not just a one-way stream of information. Um, that circular feedback exists on a Facebook. It exists on a Twitter for better or for worse sometimes, but it, it doesn't exist in podcasting. Uh, and I think it would be a, a great thing to think about incorporating both from a user experience and in order to encourage dialogue as opposed to sort of a one-way monologue. We've talked about the responsibilities or opportunities for the platforms. We've talked about the opportunities for the host. And as we conclude our time together, I want to talk about the listeners. What are one or two takeaways that you would say as you are listening to podcasts, as you are engaging the space, thinking about who you trust and, and what you want to hear about? What are two takeaways that you would share for listeners so that they can do that in a safe, effective and truthful way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. I, I would say one is to seek out lots of sources of information, right? A lot of these shows masquerading as news are commentary, right? And so you're getting one opinion, you're getting a filtered stream of information through that opinion. And so not solely relying on one podcaster or solely podcasting period, I think is a, is a great approach to be able to think about different types of information and the value that they bring to you. Listening to a podcast is often more akin to like a, an op-ed of some kind. It's wonderful. It's amazing how many voices can enter the conversation. There's some really incredible creators making podcasts, putting out content that's extremely valuable and extremely novel. However, there's also a space for bad behavior to potentially flourish, for people to sort of try out ideas or opinions that maybe wouldn't be acceptable on broadcast television. And so being aware of that, having helping to build that awareness a little bit is I think part of our goal and hopefully, you know, resonates with people who think about, oh, this medium is, is fun, but there's some challenges with it. And so being able to point out some of those challenges as well is really one of the things that, that we've been working on. Yeah, I appreciate your work because it reminds us that we have choices and that if we work together, we can make better choices about what we want to learn and how we want to learn it. Valerie Wirtschafter is Senior Data Analyst in the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technologies Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Valerie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Disrupted is produced by James Scoville Wolf and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.